We're all on a journey to reach our full potential and purpose. And no matter where you are on your path, know that we walk together and not alone. At the Mission Leadership Institute, we believe the path to leadership is self-discovery. To support you, we're bringing the most advanced thinkers in the country to help unpack all that we carry with us on this leadership journey. I'm your host, Martin Schreiber, with the Mission Leadership Institute. Well, I want to welcome everyone back to uh, this Providence Walk With Me. And Dr. Isom, we had such a great previous conversation, and, and we really uh, are diving in now to this aspect of marginalization and anti-racism. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I know in reading a lot of what you have written in the videos that this is a, a, a conversation that takes a lot of time to be mindful of, of the, the background as well as the past. And could you talk a little bit about uh, what this notion and the passion you have with the anti-racism has been about for you? Yeah, I mean, I um, starting from uh, my daughter, because I am raising a, a human um, in a context that does not recognize her full humanity. So it's a very complicated uh, experience for me. And a lot of my thinking um, has been inspired by, by that. Um, so I gave a talk just last night and I talked about how our country has created a water that we're all swimming in, that we're all soaked in, um, that distorts our perceptions. And our distorted perceptions translate to the kinds of ways that we are with one another that don't actually match what we are, which is a collective uh, group of human beings. Those distorted perceptions translate to differences in how people are treated, differences in opportunities, and differences in, in um, um, resources. Um, so I talked about last night how the distorted perceptions from the water change a four-year-old little Black girl into an adult. Um, and you see that in schools, you see that in other settings where they're just not even given a childhood, um, even though they're four, right? And, and speaking about that, I think can, everyone can connect with it. We should do something about that because, you know, we were all four at some point. We see four-year-olds around us and they are deserving of a childhood. Um, so the way that I look at it is that there are lots of different aspects of the, the water that can be addressed within organizations, outside of them, within different institutions. And our responsibility as people who were handed the water, even though we didn't create it, is to do something about it. Um, and it produces cultural ways of being with each other and also structural uh, you know, ways of operating that hands us a lot of work to do. And I'm committed to doing the work for my own benefit, um, for the benefit of my, my child, the benefit of people that I interact with both professionally and personally, because I think we deserve better. Collectively, we deserve better. Um, so that's where that passion comes from. In that development, as I've seen you give talks with uh, your daughter's developmental understandings is where we're at in, in some regards too, but then not ever negating that we're trying to see those faces of those patients in the water, um, mm -hmm. those that might have been invisible before. How do we bring out the visibility of those who are marginalized through these things uh, and to pay attention to it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because so many people have sat in rooms for a very long time, centuries, and there's not been different faces in those rooms at the surface level. There's not been different faces of perspectives in ways you can't appreciate without asking, such as differential ability, for example. Um, and I think that the first question is, is who's not here? 
if we look at global diversity, literally global diversity, who's not here? Um, do we have people whose uh, ancestors uh, arrived to the country in the past 20 years? Do we have people who have English as a second language? Um, do we have people whose uh, ancestors toiled on plantations? Um, do we have people who maybe entered into the workforce later in life and have a different set of experiences? And when we're thinking about who's not in the room, that can uh, allow us to look at the margins a bit more intentionally and invite people into the space. But then we also have to think about how we are used to treating the margins, like what are our habits? And one of the things I've talked about a lot more recently are habits of racism, because I feel like it's an easier way for people to understand that there are things that we've just been conditioned to do. So with the margins, we're often habitually not listening as closely, um, habitually dismissing or invalidating what's offered and habitually not really valuing as much um, what's in this space. So once they're invited in, we really have to reset our habits and be a lot more intentional about being inclus inclusive and creating that belonging experience that allows them to not just be present, but to offer things that can shift the culture uh, and shift the space. So we have a response, and I put myself in that too, we have a responsibility to figure out different habits and commit ourselves to making them um, something that's sustainable. And this aspect of a habit is acknowledging that race in healthcare is a part of then a part of treating patients. Mm -hmm. And are we talking about that? Are we talking about how that plays a role with the treatment of patients? I know this is something that you really have championed. And how can we have a greater dialogue of, of that in our current time? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a, a formulator. I like to formulate things, which is probably why I'm a psychiatrist. I like to take the, like, know what the pieces are and put the pieces together. Um, and one thing I think would be really helpful as a starting point is acknowledging how we are socialized. Like, we are socialized into an understanding of race that impacts how we make use of it. Um, there's a racial ideology in our country and really in the Western world. There's that that produces underlying assumptions, beliefs, and behaviors. And we also are socialized into denying any of those things exist, right? So then we're left at this impasse where there's denial and then there's reality and there's not really much of a connection between the two. Um, so I really encourage people to start off thinking about what are my underlying assumptions, beliefs and behaviors and what are they rooted in and just learning about that. And a, a term for that is racial ideology. That's something that we all possess. And if we shift, shifted our ideology, if we shifted our understanding of history, we would be more courageous about examining our habits. Uh, and in medicine, you'll see that is happening a lot more, um, specifically around use of biological race. Uh, if you look at the kidney story, they're shifting the equations that we use to offer care because they're addressing that underlying racial ideology. And that's been a beautiful thing to witness over the past couple of years. I'm so struck too by your education, the aspects of uh, Yale development and the acknowledgement of putting into this context historical research. And Camera Jones, I believe, is one who has really highlighted some of these things. Could you talk a little bit about your work? I think we really want to draw people towards her research and some of the things she's been saying. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Jones is a, a family medicine physician. She's also a public health researcher who dedicated her career at a certain point to helping under people understand race and racism and offers these really beautiful allegories that help you understand history and its present day consequences. 
um, if you look on, there's a TEDx talk that she she's done that talks about the soil um, that we're all planted within and how that soil has been differentially treated and that soil produces flowers um, that have different characteristics. But those flowers could be exactly the same if the soil was exactly the same, right? So yeah. it really takes these complicated concepts like biological race and it makes it easier to appreciate. Um, another thing she's done research on is just thinking about how our social identities are related to health. Um, so uh, she's looked at how appearing white um, can translate to actual health advantages, which is something that, you know, we talk about white privilege, but there's a lot of research that supports very specific connections between um, possessing a physical appearance of whiteness and what that privilege can look like. So she's looked at different countries, uh, including Brazil. And if you appear white, even if you identify as something different, for example, if I was identifying as black but appeared white, my health status actually matches that of um, white people in that country, which just goes to show that how you look translates to actual um, outcomes and consequences for your, your actual health. Uh, and that can help people realize, well, yeah, this, this race thing is pretty powerful and can shape things like your health status, but also your life expectancy. And uh, from a humanistic standpoint, we should do something about that, right? And that's a real uh, call to action that I think is a real impetus for our conversation today. Just mm -hmm. this whole notion that if you want to have me bring my whole self to, to work, to the clinic, to the patient interaction, do you really mean it? Mm -hmm. uh, we want to say that we do, but it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work, it seems, that needs to be done uh, if you mean it, <laughs> uh, rather than just as a, a marketing campaign. Right. I love that because there's so much um, performativeness happening and not necessarily always intentionally. I just think people don't understand what really meaning it translates to, again, because they're not used to it. It's not a habit, but it's learnable. And that's why I love the developmental framework, because these are things that we can achieve with just some intentional effort and practice. If you were starting out and you had uh, 350 caregivers who are going to go through this 18 months of interaction. Our conversation is one of these first conversations. Would there be things, uh, practices that they could do uh, to be including more understanding of anti-racism and the role that race is playing in healthcare? Yeah, I would start with, honestly, I recommend uh, Dr. Kamara Jones a lot because her work is so accessible. Uh, anything she's written, The Gardener's Tale is a good starting point. Also her TEDx talk is a great starting point. And she wrote something really recently. She talked about the seven values that make anti-racism work very hard. And when we're having a values conversation, we're having a very progressive conversation, right? Because we're talking about the sticky, icky, uncomfortable aspects of our culture um, that we usually don't want to reference. So I would start there and get that basic foundational understanding and then work your way after through other resources. I, I want to thank you for being so open to this conversation and also the aspects of uh, vulnerability that I think the conversation has. Uh, even the two of us interacting, you're uh, on that other side of the country, I'm over on this side. How do we, how do we facilitate conversations like this and, and acknowledge that they can be uncomfortable? 
um, and and know that I, I we want to have them. Um, but then to do the research, I think before um, then just recognizing we could perpetuate some of this by having the conversation, which I didn't realize mm -hmm. uh, until I started reading some of uh, your writings. And could you talk a little bit about that as we kind of finish out our time? Because I think that people need to be aware that these conversations are important not to con perpetuate what anti-racism is. Right, right. Yeah, I. Uh, most of us enter into conversations thinking about ourselves. That's how we're naturally conditioned, right? Like we're toddlers in a way. <laughs> like that's our <laughs> starting point. So we have to shift that. And leaders do that all the time, right? We're used to that, thinking about other perspectives in the room. Um, and in this kind of work, one thing that what I would like people to walk away knowing is that there is a roadmap for how to do it, right? There's actually an entire book written about how to have conversations on race. The one that I love, there's multiple, but it's called Race Talk and it's by Daryl Wing Sue. And the thing about that book is that it acknowledges not just the black, white, binary, but other racial ethnic groups as well, and what those challenges and opportunities can be. Um, so I would recommend before diving into a conversation, understanding how race talk even works. And then what I did write in one of my pieces was having a trauma-informed approach, because we can often intellectualize this stuff, but this is very visceral. This is in our bodies, um, and we experience that way in conversations. So knowing that trauma is a part of it, and then really acknowledging the feelings. So I will start off a meeting and say, hmm, there's silence here. I wonder why that might be. And then a more specific question would be, what feelings and thoughts are you having about the conversation that we're about to have? That creates a vulnerability focused space and allows people to share. And that can sometimes turn down the, the anxiety temperature in the room because people know we're all kind of feeling the same thing, but still committed to having the conversation. And then also you have to get rid of perfectionism because mistakes are gonna happen. It is what it is. And that's where the accountability piece comes in. Accountability means I'm responsible for both my intentions and my impacts, and I'm ready to acknowledge the harms that I might have perpetuated in this space. Um, and that way, even if a harm occurs, at least it was acknowledged and responded to. That's what I have enjoyed about our conversation today is that whole aspect of let's be real honest about those external factors and then continue on the path. And mm -hmm. that's what it seems that our caregivers are going to be needing as they go through this 18 month journey is mm -hmm. continual stoppage and reflection about how are you doing with these conversations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's exciting though. Journeys are exciting because <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you'll be different on the other end uh, in ways that can be really impactful. So um, well, I'm glad wanna... we're all starting it off with this kind of conversation. Yeah, and you're uh, as we have said, a, a part the voice in the backpack is your your we're carrying with you. Um, mm -hmm. So as we journey, uh, we've called this a pilgrimage uh, of walk on the path. I mean, there are things that you place in the backpack that are going to stay with you, and your voice and and us uh, being able to over the course of time keep checking in. I, I would really appreciate Dr. Isom because I think it would help us uh, to to find how we're changing in our mm -hmm. own development. Sure. I would love that too. I, that's my caregiver spirit. Like let's spread the wealth. <laughs> so. Sounds good. Well, thank you for the conversation today. You're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. You can find the Providence Mission Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. For all of you out there, remember that it is the light that comes through the wound that matters the most to becoming the whole self.